Uh, it seems like the Lord's got some things planned for us this morning. I've got to admit that the morning kind of started with a, just a kind of a sense of expectancy. Um, I realized at about 2 o'clock in the morning last night that um, I had made a, a mistake and I had written the wrong sermon. I was supposed to continue a, a three-part thing on fellowship, and the next one was supposed to be, you know, after Craig got done and after Family Day in the Park, was supposed to be our fellowship with God, and then I was going to do our fellowship with one another, as these are all promises for us in Scripture. And I totally blanked on that, and I went right to the next promise that I had planned to do, which was to cover the promise of love through the five love languages that uh, we respond to in our lives. And so this morning, we're going to take a little detour and do the first of these promises. I didn't go back and at 2 o'clock in the morning decide to write another sermon. Not going to happen. But I am going to cover the promise of love through touch, which is one of the love languages that Gary Chapman talks about in his book that he wrote a few decades ago called The Five Love Languages. In that book, he identified ways in which people communicate and receive love. Those five ways are touch, acts of service, gifts, words of affirmation, and quality time. Anybody ever, you've all heard of the, of the love languages, right? Most of you have heard of love languages, okay? They're very simply just the, the ways that our psyche works in receiving and giving love. And what works for us doesn't necessarily work for the next person. If you're talking to somebody whose love language is touch, and all you're doing is filling them full of words of affirmation, telling them how wonderful they are, but you're not touching them, their love tank is not getting filled. And I watch a lot of marriages struggle because the two people don't really understand how to reach the other person effectively with love. And that works for every relationship we have. Danny Silk, in his book, Keeping Your Love On, compares these love languages to fuel for your vehicle. This is what he says. He says, every person usually has one primary way that they receive and show love, one type of fuel that fills up their love tank. Knowing someone's love language is as important as knowing what kind of gasoline goes in your car. If you fill a car that takes unleaded gas with diesel fuel, or you fill a diesel engine with jet fuel, it won't be too long before the car breaks down and leaves you stranded on the side of the road. It's just as essential to fill people's love tanks with the language they need in order to function and feel connected in a relationship. Understanding these love languages can make all the difference in your relationship with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with your friends, and even with your coworkers. Most importantly, it can make a huge difference in how you understand and relate to God, how you connect with God. Going through the promises of God like we have been for, gosh, over a year now, almost a year and a half, I wanted to talk about the promise of love. We have such great, amazing promises of God's love towards us. Jeremiah 31.3, one of my favorite, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. When I showed up this morning, Dave had that plastered across the back of his T-shirt, and I went, oh, yeah, God's doing something this morning, because why would he pick that T-shirt? It's like, yeah, that is cool. 
the verse we probably know the best, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Just what uh, we're talking about this morning during communion with Sally. He wants us to have that kind of love relationship with him that results in an eternal relationship. Why? Because Jeremiah 33, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He doesn't want that to end. One of my favorites, Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while I was still walking around in my sin, not knowing God, absolutely dead to him, He still planned on the love relationship that he would have with me. And Jesus still died for me. In fact, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. You realize that that means he was crucified before man was created, much less you or I being born. God knew even before he created us that he was going to give us a free will that would ultimately result in our rebellion against God. He needed to do that in order for the love that we have with him to actually be love, because love is a choice. God's love is a choice. The word love in the Bible that describes God's love is agape. It's the Greek word that they use in the New Testament for the love of God. And it literally does mean choice. That's what the word translates to. It doesn't translate to the word love. It translates to the word choice. In other words, God chose us. He did so before the foundation of the world, knowing that we would need to choose him back in order for that love relationship to happen. But these are just some of the promises that God has for us in terms of his love for us. Just considering some of these promises that are mentioned in the Bible, to me, speaks of the fact that God knows us inside and out and has provided for us in every, each, each and every one of us for a language to receive love from him. In other words, God speaks in all five love languages. Doesn't leave any of them out. It makes sense when you consider the words of 1 John 4, 7 through 12. He says, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who's loved has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God has so loved us, I love that, that he throws that in there. God has so loved us. You know, it's just a, it, it, we, we kind of miss it when we don't put some emphasis on that word so. You know, God has so loved us. It's like, you're so in trouble now. No. Uh, it, 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 we use that word, don't we, to, to, to do that, to kind of give emphasis to things. God so loved us. We also then ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. See how God wraps all this together? Our love relationship with him is our love relationship with one another. You know, that's why Jesus talked about the idea of having just two commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a love relationship that 
encompasses us all. John, writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lets us know that the very nature of God is love. He is the originator of love. So it makes sense that he would communicate love in all the ways that Dr. Chapman describes in his book. That's what made me think to approach this subject of the promise of love through the five love languages. Basically, I wanted us to see how God relates to us at our point of need and at our point of receiving and understanding. So for the, you know, the next few weeks here, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to work all this together when I'm going to come back to the other thing on fellowship, but at least for, you know, there's four more weeks of this, okay? We're going to look at the promise of love, starting with the promise of love through touch. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is, a, this is an interesting morning, Father. You've already brought some things to light this morning that just seem to be telling me that you're going to connect some dots here for people this morning. So, Father, I'm going to pray this earnestly, that we would have ears to hear, that we would have hearts to receive, and that we would come to know at least a little bit better this morning this great passion that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody ever read the comic strip, strip uh, Hagar the Horrible? Yeah, okay. Uh, it, it's just one of those comic strips that is in the daily paper kind of thing. And I don't know, I, I kind of read it a lot when I was a kid. I don't read the paper anymore because it's got too much bad news in it. Um, <laughs> but this, this was a comic strip from Hagar the Horrible. Helga, his wife, he, uh, he comes walking in, and, and she's busy. She's standing at a cooking pot in the comping strip, and she's working, and she hears this noise, and he asks, she asks, Hagar, is that you? And Hagar replies, yes. And Helga's still watching the pot that she's stirring. You're late. Where were you? Hagar says, well, I had business, a meeting, a business meeting with Attila the Hun. Helga then says, well, hurry up and wash your hands. Dinner is almost ready. You can see this kind of picture going on in somebody's life, right? Hagar says, uh, um, <clears throat> would you come here for a minute? Helga says, okay, but, but I, I'm busy. What do you want? Helga, who hasn't yet turned away from her pot during the whole conversation, turns and sees Hagar bruised and battered and on his knees after his business meeting with Attila the Hun. Hagar pleads, I need a hug. Let me ask you, ever just needed a hug? Are you like, you ever just needed a hug? Had one of those days, you know, where you just needed a hug? If you, you, you respond that way, then maybe your love language is touch. Or at least one of your love languages is touch. You know, Jesus was a master of the love language of touch. It's really easy to see how he used touch to communicate love to people I want to use actually two stories from the ministry life of Jesus to illustrate this truth. And the first story comes from Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read this to you out of the NIV. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When, he came, when Jesus, when he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the man was cured of leprosy. 
Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Very short passage, very short story. The first thing about God's love that strikes me here in this story is his willingness to touch this man. You have to understand what's happening here. Jesus has just finished teaching on a hillside, literally the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Chapter 7 of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. He's just finished that, and he's coming down off the mount, the mountain, and all these people are following with him. And here he encounters a man standing in the path who's suffering from leprosy. Now, leprosy in Jesus' day was extremely dangerous. Even today, we don't actually have a cure for what's called Hansen's disease or leprosy. We're just better at controlling the effects it has on the body, but we have no cure for it. In Jesus' day, it was highly contagious. Not so much today, but in his day, it was highly contagious. Because of this, anyone who had this disease was required by Jewish law to remove themselves from society. You've heard of leper colonies? That's the idea. If someone had leprosy, they had to be removed from the general populace. Otherwise, they could infect everyone. Anytime that they came near healthy people, they were required to shout out warnings about their condition, lest anyone would touch them and contract the disease. So imagine what's happening here. Jesus is walking down this path, and here's this man probably shouting out at the top of his lungs, leper or unclean. That's what they were required to say. The people walking with Jesus, you can just see them. They're, they're pulling back now, right? Um, let's figure out a way to get around this man without getting too close. But this man is not to be deterred. He knows he needs to be touched. And he's desperate for that touch. So he dares to come to Jesus. He dares to kneel before Jesus. He dares to ask Jesus to make him clean again. And you know what? He doesn't even consider or doubt that Jesus can do it. There's no hint of that in the man's dialogue with Jesus. His only hesitation is, is Jesus willing? Would he touch somebody like me? Will you touch me? Will you heal me? And you know what? Jesus doesn't even hesitate. I just want you to see one thing here out of this, this little passage. It's really important. Jesus is not tainted by this man's problem. He doesn't fear the man's unclean state of being. He's supremely unworried that this man's problem will somehow taint him, somehow rub off on him, somehow make him less than who he is. He simply does what is needed to make the man clean, healthy, and huggable. Folks, sometimes the only thing standing between us and the touch we need from God is our own perception of sin. In Jesus' day, the religious leaders made a point of keeping their distance from anyone 
who appeared to be sinful, lest they taint themselves. Jesus had no problem embracing sinners. He had no problem removing any barrier between them and the touch that they so desperately needed. He knew the power of touch. And you know what? As much as the Pharisees of Jesus' day tried to remove themselves, and we look at that and we say, how horrible, we do the same thing today, don't we? The church is famous for trying to remove itself from the world, trying to distance itself from someone's sin. I see this especially in the ministry, especially with pastors, pastors who make a mistake, pastors who are, quote, fallen from grace, and how they are kicked to the curb by the church and especially by church leadership. It happened not so long ago in, in our lives as someone from the organization that helped plant this church made some mistakes, and he was immediately kicked to the curb. And it, it broke my heart to see the organization do that to him. We're really good at trying to distance ourselves. Me, I have the other kind of mindset. I, I kind of want to be like Jesus. How about you? I want to run out and hug him. I want to run out and, and tell him, you know what? That's not God. My God doesn't do that. And so I refuse to go there. I once had a friend tell me, it's a good friend, that he wouldn't go into church because the roof would probably fall in on them. That was his view of his own sin, his personal view of, of his distance from God. He saw God more like a, a cosmic cop that was just waiting for him to get close enough so he could punish him. And sometimes I wonder if we don't suffer from the same perspective we look at our failures and we wonder, is God really interested in touching us, healing us, holding us? Listen, understand this. If you get nothing else today, get this. You can't taint Jesus with your shortcomings, with your failures, or with your sin. He's in the business of removing it. Sort of like a heavenly UPS shipping company that removes our sin according to Scripture as far as the east is from the west. He just ships it out. You can't mess God up with your problem. So don't let the enemy try to convince you with his lies that you need to keep any distance from Jesus. Don't let anything keep you from the touch that you need. Let me change tax here just for a moment, because this has ramifications that go beyond just how God relates to us as well. I don't doubt that some of you are sitting here this morning, and you need to be touched. You need to be loved, but you're not sure it's safe to let anybody else know that. Maybe the last church you were in, everybody had to be fine. I don't know about you, I've been in a church like that before, where you met people on Sunday morning, how you doing? I'm fine. Yeah, me too. And inside, you know that person's not fine. They just had a hell of a week. But they're not going to admit that, because to admit that makes them tainted and unclean and unworthy of love. 
unworthy of acceptance, unworthy of being touched. They're not huggable at that point because that's how they see themselves. Like the leper, they've been taught that polite society is not accepting or safe. And guess what? For the most part, they're right. It's not. Jesus, folks, is not looking to develop a house of polite society in this place. And you know what? Neither am I. I'm looking for dangerous, and Jesus is looking for dangerous, radical, take the kingdom by force warriors, willing to go to the extreme in the area of love and loving one another. You see, powerful people are willing to break down barriers like Jesus did and establish deep connections with broken, wounded, hurting, sinful people. Why? Because Jesus wasn't tainted, so we're not tainted by their sin. You know, people who need to be touched by love will never be helped in a polite shake your hand, kiss you on both cheeks, society. What Danny calls in his book, Keeping Your Love On, the Christian side hug. You ever got one of those? The Christian side hug? Danny Danny says this about the Christian side hug. The side hug usually means I'm attempting to show connection with you, but I'm really afraid of you. (laughs) Folks, If you want to reach a person who has a love language of touch, you will need to learn ways to express healthy, honest, honoring affection. Just another, I know I'm kind of bunny trailing away from God touching us here, but this is important. As the people of God, we don't need to worry about protecting God's reputation from people's sin. A story I told you about the, the pastor that got kicked to the curb, trying to protect the organization's image, trying to protect God's image. Got to get rid of the, the things that, that would damage it instead of embracing and watching that person's life change. Danny tells a story about a young man in ministry who confesses that uh, he had an, an affair. And the leaders of the church, senior pastor of the church, comes to, to, to Danny, what do we do? This young man was our worship leader. This young man is so anointed of God. He was leading us to places in worship we had never gone before. And now we have to deal with this problem. What do we do? Can we send him to you? Can, he, can, can you help him? And he comes to Danny, and, and, and Danny just receives him, embraces him, and starts to love him back into to health. And he sends him back to his church after they've worked through some issues that were uh, destroying that man's relationship with his wife. And the, the husband and the wife are in a, in a place now they've never been before in a love relationship so, so amazing. They, they've never experienced this freedom before in their lives. And he sent him back to the pastor, and he gets a call from the pastor, well, what do we do? Do we, do we set him aside? Do we 
kick him out of ministry kind of thing? Do we, do we release him kind of thing? And, and Danny's response to the pastor was, you got to be kidding me. When he was walking in sin, when he was tainted before, and he was leading you to places you'd never been to before in ministry, okay, you thought he was amazing. And now he is amazing, and you want to get rid of him? Doesn't make much sense. Folks, the church can't be tainted by our sin. You know why? We're all sinners, saved by grace. Don't let that stop you. And don't let it stop you from embracing one another or the people around you. We're driving here this morning, and we, we tend to go to Starbucks. I need my help in the morning, okay? It's my caffeine and my sugar and everything combined. You know, and, and one of the young men we've kind of befriended there at, at our Starbucks is probably gay. I mean, he has all of the outward signs of being gay. And he, he tried the Baptist church here in town. I don't know which one. doesn't matter kind of thing. And he just couldn't fit in. And I want to so reach out to him and hug him and just say, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. Come. God loves you. God loves you. And he will accept you. And he will love on you. Well, what about his sin, pastor? God doesn't accept sin. Light can't exist with darkness. Do, do you sin? I do. Okay, I am not perfect. And if you think I am, you need to find another church. <laughs> we are all broken and fallen people. But guess what? We're ambassadors to broken and fallen people too. We're supposed to be taking those broken and fallen people and bringing them to the throne of, guess what? Grace. The same place we got grace. Broken and fallen people are not obstacles to be avoided, folks. They are opportunities to be embraced. And, and when I say embraced, I mean touched and loved, not fixed. Do you get that? My job is to touch them with the love of God, to embrace them with these arms and these hands, because God loves them that much, to be the arms and the hands of Jesus to them. But it is not my job to fix them. It's my job to love them. I mean, holy cow, think about this. We're supposed to love our enemies. Our job is to love and embrace in the name of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit's job to fix people. It's our job to lovingly embrace them while he does his work. If we will embrace the person, God will address the issue. Get that? If we will embrace the person, God will address the issue. What you need to remember from this first story, because I'm going to go to my second one here in just a second. What you need to remember from this first story is that God is in the business of touching people no matter their issues. And God's business is also our calling when it comes to his love. We're to embrace them and give him a chance to do the fixing. Amen? Amen. Okay. Now, with that in mind, I want to I do a short announcement. 
Sometimes things, uh, you know, they, they happen beyond our control. And this is kind of one of those things that happen beyond our control. Just every once in a while these things happen. But we're going to respond in love. Usually on Labor Day weekend, which is coming up next weekend, the, sh- the Y shuts down, okay? And we hold our services outside because they're cleaning the floors, polishing these floors. Usually they, they renovate, it's to some degree, this room kind of thing. So they kick us out for one Sunday every year kind of thing. And we go and we have our service right out here in the grass area and, and, and all that's cool. But they usually shut down Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday in order to do all these renovations. This year they're not going to do that. They called us this week to tell us they're only going to shut down on Sunday and Monday. But we used to come and just as a service thing, just as a, a way to touch them in love and to connect with them, we used to come on Saturday and, and do a barbecue for them. We would feed all the workers. There's usually 30 to 40, 50 people here that we feed. They were wondering if we could do that on Sunday. So first reaction is, uh-oh, okay, it's kind of late notice here uh, kind of thing. What do we do with this? I mean, Sunday is kind of a busy day. You know, how can, we, how can we do this? So, you know, our brilliant minds, I'm going to say brilliant because it was partly my idea. <laughs> what? You know, why not do that? Why not do this instead? Next Sunday, why don't we have a barbecue? The whole church. We're going to be out there for service anyway. Why don't we just light up the fire pit, okay? And we'll have our own barbecue. And in the process, we'll feed the 30, 40, 50, 60 people, whatever, that show up to work as well. We'll do that service project, and we'll still love on them, okay? And we'll, we'll still be able to touch them with the love of Jesus. And at the same time, we'll have a great time fellowshipping with one another. Are y'all in for that? Because we're going to do it whether you show up or not. <laughs> I'm just telling you right now, we're going to do it, okay? Because it would be easy to say, no, I'm sorry, we can't do that. That would be easy, but then we wouldn't get the opportunity to touch them, would we? So, next Sunday, next Sunday, that's my announcement. Come prepared, okay? There's a refrigerator back there in the kitchen. If you bring something like a, a salad or something that's cold, Uh, kind of thing. We can always throw it in the refrigerator during service, but come prepared with some kind of potluck kind of thing. Okay, yeah, just bring a salad, bring a a dessert, bring something like that kind of thing. The church is going to go ahead and and do hamburgers and hot dogs, so we'll provide the the meat and the buns and the condiments, okay? But go ahead and and do that, and we'll, we'll make sure everything else is there. If you guys can bring salads and desserts, that would be awesome, okay? And we'll have We'll have a picnic, and we'll feed the wise volunteers, the people that come and give their time and, and uh, talents to helping keep this place in, in good, good shape. So next week, barbecue. Oh, does anybody have wood for the barbecue that they could bring? That'll work. You have red oak? Okay, if you can bring some, some of that, that makes it even taste better. <laughs> so... Okay, good. Then we'll have plenty, Bob. Okay. Okay, the second story I want you to see that involves the touch of Jesus comes from Matthew, Mark, excuse me, Mark chapter 7. We did Matthew already. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Another really interesting story of how Jesus touches. Yeah, I've got plenty of time. Okay. It says this in in, uh, chapter 7, verse 31 of Mark. 
Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the regions of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and he touched the man's tongue. He looked up into heaven and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Epatheta, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosed and he began to speak plainly. That's an interesting story. You stop and think about what Jesus, what Jesus is doing here for this man. It is, it, it's definitely a story of healing, okay? The man isn't just deaf, though. He doesn't speak well. And you, if you're with a person whose love language is touch, you really need to, to see some of what Jesus is doing here. First, notice that Jesus begins his interaction with this man by doing one thing. He takes him aside from the crowd. He moves him away from people. This story comes just before the story of the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus says, I have compassion on the multitude because they have been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. Mark 8, 2 is where that is. Folks, Jesus has compassion on multitudes. This is true. But he imparts touch on an individual basis. Even after, later in chapter 8, even after the feeding of the 5,000, it says he took the blind man. This is another story of healing. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. That's before he heals him. He's leading a blind man by the hand before he heals him, and he takes him out away from people. Just like here in chapter 7, he takes the man away from the crowd. You know, this is a great principle for us with the love language of touch. It's one of my love languages, okay? It's a great principle. Anyone who at any time senses the need of being touched by the love of God needs to get alone with God. Get that? It's the first thing I see in this story. I think it's, it's terribly important. He's removed from the crowd, removed from the multitude. And then later, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus leads the blind man out of town. There is a principle here that we need to see and understand. If you're needing a touch from God, the best way to get it is not in a multitude of people, not in a crowd. It's not that God can't touch you there. He does. He's capable of anything. But one of the best ways to get there is to get quiet and to get alone with God. The multitude has a way of keeping you distracted and preoccupied with its own agenda. God, on the other hand, has a way of leading us to a place of solitude where he can have his sway in our lives and he can have our undivided attention so that we can hear and receive the touch that we need. The scriptures are full of people who did this with God. Moses got alone with God. David got alone with God a lot. John the Baptist went out into the wilderness alone with God. Paul did. Elijah did. Jonah did. Daniel did. Joseph did. And, and the list goes on. Listen, even Jesus got alone with the Father on a regular basis. How much more important is it for us, especially if you have the love language of touch, to get alone with God where he can actually talk to you, touch you? I love the idea 
of us coming together on Sunday morning as a body of Christ. And I expect for us to be touched by the Holy Spirit when that happens. I really do. I believe in that. But this can't be the only place, folks, that that happens in your life. When we substitute the crowd for alone time with God, then we may end up paying the price of not being touched by him like we should be or as often as we should be. This world's a busy place. And, you know, I know my life is. I don't know about yours, but my life is crazy busy. And we all have all manner of excuses for not getting alone with God. But you know what? That's just the thing. They're excuses. They're rationalizations for not doing what we really need to do. Not for God, but for us. We need to do this. The thing about excuses is that they are the very things that keep us from what we really need and desperately want. Ever notice that about our excuses? They're the very things that stand in our way from getting what we desperately need. Somehow we buy into those excuses even though they hurt us. In the long run, they do damage. This is true for me. One of my love languages, folks, is touch. And I am acutely aware aware of my need for alone time with God. Yet, I will go for way too long, way too long, allowing the demands of work and ministry and family, which, by the way, are all really, 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 really amazing good things, okay? I am... I am blessed of God to have all the work that I do, okay? There was a time in 2009 where there wasn't any work, okay? I am blessed of God to to be backlogged with work like I am right now. I am blessed of God to have a wife who has quality time as a love language, and I need to spend time with her in order to fill her love tank. I am blessed by that. These These are good things. But listen, when I let the demands of work and ministry and family, even though they're good things, rob me of my alone time with God, then what am I doing? I'm punishing myself. Basically, I work seven days a week. I keep promising myself I'm going to take at least one day, just one day a month, to spend alone with God. That's that's what I keep telling myself. The problem is, I keep promising that, and I can't even remember the last time I did it. I haven't done it for so long, I can't remember the last time I did it. Now, I understand this, okay? I don't confess that to you so that you'll feel sorry for me. Not at all. That's my fault, and no one else is responsible for it but me. Okay? I certainly don't confess it to you so that you'll admire me for how hard I work and how committed I am to this ministry. If anything, folks, I think I hurt this ministry and myself by ignoring my own connection with his touch. So that's nothing to admire. I think probably I create my own wilderness experiences because it's the only way he can get me alone long enough to impart to me what I need the most. You ever thought about that, your wilderness experiences with God? Okay? Don't get the wrong idea about wilderness experiences, okay? 
They're not punishment. You know, when God takes you into the wilderness, he's not taking you out there to spank you, okay? He's taking you out there to connect with you. So don't feel sorry for yourself if you feel like you're taking, you know, another lap around Mount Sinai, okay? Don't feel sorry for yourself in that situation. Learn from it. Embrace it. He leads people away from the crowd, folks, so he can touch them, heal them, impart to them. The other thing we see in this story is that getting alone with God so he can touch you is an amazing thing. This man was both deaf and either mute or really didn't talk well. You know, it's really hard to learn how to talk when you're deaf to what people say. You, it's hard. you ever heard a, a deaf person speak? I know quite a few people. It's, I think it's amazing when they speak with any kind of clarity at all because somehow they learn, despite their deafness, how to pronounce words they've never heard. I don't know how they do that. That, to me, is amazing. But you can tell that they're deaf by the way they talk because it doesn't come out quite the way you would expect it to come out. It's hard to learn to talk when you can't hear what words sound like. Getting alone with God is about being touched, about being changed. This man not only had his hearing healed, but also his speech. It says in the passage, and he spoke plainly or clearly. What's going into him now changes what comes out of him. Isn't that an interesting thing? Stop and think about that for a moment. Now he can hear, and it changes what comes out. When God touches us, what he puts in changes what comes out. When we're touched by the love of Jesus, we will be changed. Don't let anything, anything, failures, sin, whatever, don't let that stand between you and the touch that you desperately need. Now, you don't have to have the love language of touch to grab a hold of this thing, okay? Your love language may be very different from that. You may be gifts or acts of service, quality time, but you still need to be touched, we need that. We were built for community. Don't let anything stand between you and that touch. Risk whatever you have to in order to get your love tank filled. And know this. Know this. Jesus stands ready to touch you when you will open yourself up to his embrace. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and I will sup with him and he with me. I love that verse. One of the first verses I, I memorized as a Christian, actually. And yes, I memorized it out of something other than the NIV. It was the, uh, the NASB, so it sounds a little strange maybe coming out of, out of me. But God stands ready, folks. He stands ready to touch you. Jesus makes the promise, and he makes the invitation as well to touch us with his love anytime, anytime that we are willing to open ourselves up, open the door, and allow him to embrace us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just, I'm so grateful for the way that you love, for the fact that you are loved, Jesus, that, that you loved us enough to go to the cross for us.
Father, I just want to pray for us as a people right now. I don't know what's going through your heart, what's going through your mind, but a couple of things are going through my mind this morning. So I'm going to lay them out there for you. And if you identify with any of these things, then pray with me. If you're sitting there this morning and, and, and you know you're, you've been missing the touch of God in your life, you're saved, you know that, that, that you're going to heaven, but you just feel disconnected. Or you just need to be more connected. Would you pray with me? Something like this. Heavenly Father, I open my arms to you. Jesus, I welcome your embrace. Touch me, Jesus. Heal me. Restore me. Make my sins that are red as white as snow. Wash away things that have borne me down. I welcome your touch. Maybe you're sitting there this morning and, and you're not even connected with God. For whatever reason, you found yourself here and, and um, or maybe you've just been kidding yourself all this time. I don't know. But there's something about what's going on this morning that just makes me want to invite you into Jesus' embrace, to invite you into an everlasting relationship with God. Because as I said earlier, as the scripture said, his love is an everlasting love. And he desires for that love to go your whole life long right into eternity. But you've never taken that step. If you've never taken that step, would you, would you pray with me something like this? Jesus, I accept your offer of love. Thank you for what you did for me on the cross. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Thank you for making me a child of God. And if you prayed that prayer just now and, and you accepted Jesus, I want to hear from you after the service. But just let me, let me close this, this prayer time with just this. I declare over us as a people today that, Holy Spirit, you're going to touch us in such a dramatic fashion that we will be different people walking out this door and walking into the week that's in front of us. That by the time we come back together as a body of Christ next Sunday, we will have stories to tell of the way that you touched us and the way you allowed us to touch others because you love us that much. In Jesus' name. Amen.